All right, I'm just being real here. You are about to hear wisdom hitting your eardrums any second now because I am about to sit down in this conversation with the one, the only, Mr. Ryan Holiday. I think Ryan ties the record for most guest appearances on the show here, and it's because he is an amazing and prolific author, and so much of his work speaks directly to us creators and entrepreneurs. And his new book, Stillness is the Key, is the key topic of our conversation. Not the only topic, but a huge part of it, and for good reason. This book is a masterpiece. Um, I have, uh, I think Ryan shares in this interview that I was his very first interview for the first book that he ever dropped. And so this is a full circle moment. Um, Nine books now, uh, millions and millions of copies sold, and this one he just dropped this week and went straight to number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Um, so inspirational, so deserved, and this book truly is uh, a game changer. As is this particular conversation where we talk about everything from um, what part creativity plays in our mind, in our spirit, in our daily habits, um, and the value. The I think the unsung value of quiet, of stillness. You've heard me talk um, in all kinds of different places. Uh, you read it in my book about the, the value of quiet. There's sort of two modes. There's open and closed. There's where you're out there gathering inspiration and information. And then you have to get quiet and synthesize that information as a part of the creative process. Ryan totally nails that in this book and especially in this conversation. I can't wait for you to hear it. So I'm going to get out of the way for you to get to listen. The pleasure of listening to Mr. Ryan Holiday drop wisdom and uh, please give a shout out to Ryan on social if you got value from this. He's just at Ryan Holiday all over the place and pick yourself up a, a copy of this book. Um, so I'm gonna get out of the way before I do just a super quick word from our sponsor and then we're gonna get right to it. Hey, before we get into today's episode, I got a favor to ask. I've got a new book out. It's called Creative Calling. And of course, I would love for you to pick up a copy or two or 10 But here's why. This is not about a transaction. Of course, I want to sell as many books as I can, but this isn't about my bank account or the publisher. This is about a message and a movement. This is about the fact that there's creativity inside of every person and that if we understand that we each can harness this creativity and use it to channel uh, our, our creativity, not just to make things on a daily basis, yes, that's valuable, but to be able to create the living life that we want for ourselves and ideally for those around us. And right now, everyone has someone in their life who either doesn't identify as a creator or for whom they could use a bump, a nudge, a little bit of a push around their creative calling in life. And it's my hope that this book, I put everything I have into this book, everything. And if you could help me be the messenger for this by delivering them a copy of the book, um, picking up a copy uh, yourself, and of course, sharing that you are reading this book um, with your audience, that would mean everything to me. It's so important that we rally as a community around the ideas that we believe in, and this is my ask to you. So thank you very much. And now, okay, now let's get into today's episode. I think you were the, like the first interview that I did with my first book. Ego, uh, no, that that was uh, trust me. Trust me. Yeah. I think it was in this room, or was it that room? I don't know. But it, uh, <laughs> it's uh, it feels very fitting to be back. Here. Nine books later. Yeah. 
Congratulations Thank on number you. one, man. I know this has been a, a journey. You've always been on the lists all over the place. Just to go straight to number one on your first week is huge. Congratulations. Yeah, it's been cool. I mean, after uh, you know eight previous snubs, <laughs> uh, it was, it's good to be there. But I think what I sort of, we were sort of talking about this previous, is, is I was like, you, <clears throat> you can't be attached to the results because a lot of times you do everything right and you don't get them. Yep. And it's wonderful when you do get them. Yeah. But art and creativity and entrepreneurship, all you really control is what you put in. And the, ex, the, the, the results have to be the extra. You actually, you actually have to love the grind of it yeah. and the process of it and the work of it because that part is guaranteed. <laughs> and then the other part is extra. For sure. As super well put. And uh, I think the context is... Um, you have been a huge mentor to me in the world of book writing. I just came out with mine. You, you were instrumental in helping shape that and helping me understand the process. And the the process part of any creative activity, I found it especially grueling writing since it's not my primary mode of, of expression. Um, and to, to have that, I think that's going to be the underpinning to our conversation today, the process for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's a, a, a lot of, process-oriented in all of your writing um, as a way of a foundation, a way of thinking about the world. Um, Stillness is the key to me is my favorite so far, a confession. I'm only two-thirds of the way through because I got the book yesterday. And so to not have the last <laughs> last chunk is killing me a little bit. But I do think that, that um, I don't know, I, I kind of, I, I, I love the, uh, this is my favorite book of the trilogy for yeah. those folks who know um, ego is the enemy what was the order actually obstacle is the way yeah, ego is the enemy. enemy stillness is the key um those books as a trilogy have sold i don't know are you up to a million copies yet yeah well, well over yeah um, see that is just crazy and you talk about results versus process so did you think that you were going to sell a million books when you started to started on this trilogy a, B, was it a trilogy from day one or did it evolve? And C, and I'm gonna, we'll deconstruct these answers. And C, would you do it again if you had the chance? <laughs> okay, that's a lot. Um, I, I, I talked to a lot of authors and actually one of the big red flags for me is when I hear them have a number that they're trying to hit. Got it. Um, a number of books or a, a number? number. Yeah, yeah, they wanna sell a million copies or it's two million copies. And I remember I was talking to someone they were like, why? Do you, and they were like, I want to sell two and a half million copies. I was like, why two and a half? That seems like a strange number. And he's like, well, I heard so and so sold X, and so this is like fifty percent more than X. And to me, that's totally the wrong way to think about it. First yeah. off, because you should want to sell as many copies as possible. Like, why? Right. Why artificially limit yourself with like this is what success is? But. So much of that part is out of, the goal should be to write the best book you're humanly capable of making in that moment. Mm -hmm. Because that is totally in your control, right? It's to say what you have to say, to, to, you know, leave it all in the jersey or in the desk chair, you know, to leave it all there. That's what you want to do. And then, of course, if you want to, you have to hustle, you have to promote it, you have to put it just the same amount of work into selling as you did into making but I think to think about it in terms of sales numbers is the wrong way because, like, look, you can pull up right now 
uh, the reviews of Herman Melville's Moby Dick when it came out, and it, they're savage. You know, <laughs> Scathing, they're like, yeah. they're, it's like, how dare you publish such a horrible book? Like this, you are doomed to failure. Everyone <laughs> hates you. Please kill yourself. You know, like, and and that that happens time and time again for really great uh, artists. And then conversely, the opposite happens all the time, which is super untalented people sell lots of copies, win lots of awards, get all sorts of recognition. Because they're on trend, it's of the moment, and then we kind of look back and we're like, "Man, did we really buy that many Limp Biscuit albums?" You know, <laughs> and so uh, no, no offense, of course, but but the the point is like, it's not that sales don't matter, but to me, I think sales only matter over such a long period of time that they're not worth thinking about. Of course, you have to feed your family, you have to pay the bills. You know, if you sell zero copies, it's probably a sign something's wrong. But yes. like, I so I don't think about it in terms of sales. What I thought about when The Obstacles Away came out, is like, look, did I write the best book I possibly can? Did I do everything I possibly could to put it in a position to succeed? And it came out and it did okay. I mean, look, it was a, it's, these books are about an obscure school of ancient philosophy. They, are not, they were not going to blow the doors off. Like, I'm writing a book. If you want to write a book that sells a million copies out of the gate, you write The Secret, which tells everyone what they want to hear. If you want to write something that matters and means something to people, yeah. you kind Challenges of have to, you, to challenge them. Right, and right. so... It did okay when it came out, but really the saving grace for me there was I'd already started the next book. I'd already sold it. So the fact that it didn't, you know, uh, blow away expectations didn't matter because, like, I had a deadline to meet. And then when the New England Patriots read it and then the Seahawks read it and all these sports teams started reading it and the Sports Illustrated profiled it, it did blow up. Yeah. It sold so many copies, like, the publisher could not print enough of them. But also, that didn't matter because I had a deadline to meet, right? So you yeah. want to be in, like, you want you want to be ABC, so busy doing always the work. Be creating. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. You want to love the the work so much, and also you want to have so much you need to do that you don't think about that. And so I'd absolutely do that again. I would, I I would uh, maybe I I wish I'd had a little bit more confidence to to see where the series was going in advance. It was a little bit more like piece by piece. Yeah. But, but for me, it was, what do you have to say? Are you putting in all the work necessary to get it down on the page, to get it into a place where it can succeed, and then put it out into the world, and then get back to work? Super powerful. Nice. That, to, to circle back now, we're underpinning the creative process here. And what you described right there to me is where... I think 90% of the creators that I know, whether you couch it as you did early on in our conversation in sales or whatever, or just the accolades afterwards, versus the loving of the actual process. And to be crystal clear, process is not just the writing because you have to love talking about it and sharing it and doing the work that you do. Yeah, you gotta love getting the notes back that are ripping it apart. You gotta love the smell of the pages. You gotta love the grind of the marketing. You gotta love, you gotta love the whole thing. Um, I heard uh, someone was talking that Conan Conan O'Brien, he just, is like his fantasy is like, backstage like he loves the motion and the energy and everything that's happening backstage that's his heaven yeah and i think jerry seinfeld said something similar you gotta like you gotta find the the painful stuff that you like you know what i mean you gotta find that that part of it what differentiates you your willingness to like push through when everyone else sees this is oh it's too hard it's gotten too ugly too gross too deep too yeah you know the hill is too high or sure. too hard to climb so 
Now, if that's gonna continue to underscore our conversation because I'm fascinated with process, specifically writing process, having personally just come out of it and having so many people who are listeners and watchers uh, of this show in their own creative process somewhere. But in order to understand the process, I now wanna go to stillness. Okay. So if uh, the previous two books dealt with different aspects, stillness to me in a world that is like, I'll say plagued, but there's lots of words that I could use that is bombarded with, filled with, overly inflated with, hustle, grind. Sure. I mean, and we've just... Yeah, we were just talking about it. We were using some of those words. What role does stillness play? Because we can't... Can we be all of those things and still... I think so. Like the stillness that I'm fascinated with, I'm writing about that. I think creative, entrepreneurial people need to think about is not the stillness of the monk in the meditation retreat or the the ashram in India or whatever, right? It's not the retreat from the world. It's how do you have the stillness while all the craziness is going on? I opened the book with this story of Seneca, and he's in basically this hotel room (laughs) in Rome 2,000 years ago, and he describes... (laughs) <laughs> the exact scene and sounds yeah. that we would get if we opened this window right now. And it, yeah, the the, spa- the splashing. There's some like the splashing of the water on the fat guy jumping in or something. Yeah, he's like, like, like he's staying. Detail is amazing. He's, he's staying above a gym. He can hear people getting like massages. <laughs> yeah, that's the slapping he can hear of the groaning skin. old yeah. <laughs> men. He can hear like the traffic on the street below. Yeah. He can hear the cops arresting someone downstairs. Like. So, so that's his scene, and he's like, you got to figure, you, he's like, you have to be able to get to a place where you can tune not only all of that out, because what happens if it's totally silent, and now all you're hearing is that voice in your head? You got to be able to tune that out as well. You got to get to a place where the Stoics called apatheia or ataraxia, and it just means like you're not jerked around or distracted by anything external or anything internal, and you're just totally locked in, and you're 100% on whatever you're doing. In that case, he's writing a letter that we're still reading 2,000 years later. That's why that's so important. Yeah. And so when I think about, like, when I think about my best work, whether it's the best sentences I've written, the best decisions I've made, the best investments I've, you know, I've, I've gone ahead with, the best personal you know, choices I've made in my life, what all those things have in common is that they came from a place where I'd slowed things down, where I was only thinking about what matters, my heart was in the right place, my mind was in the right place, my habits were on point, and I was just there. And so the stillness I'm talking about is stillness that will, is the stillness of an elite athlete in the prime of their career, at the peak moment of their career. It's the artist who's in the flow state, who's, who's accessing things, yeah. the deeper part of their existence. It, and it's also the stillness of like, you know, a, a walk through the woods or, you know, time on the couch with someone you love. Like mm-hmm. it, it's that stillness that makes us great at what we do and grateful for all the things that we have. So I think the stillness that I'm talking about is not mutually exclusive with the grind or the work or the hustle. Mm-hmm. It's actually like, if you're going to be grinding, if you're going to be hustling, if you're going to be putting things out, make sure you're doing it from a place of fullness, not from a place of like craving and desperation um, because you're not going to get the same results. Yeah. 
And you've arranged the book into three parts that are really helpful. Sort of the, the, the mind part, the, the spirit part, and then the flesh part. Yes. Which is what you basically just sort of unpacked for us. Um, I like also the, the variety of examples that you used, athletes and entrepreneurs. And I think just to reference the athlete in the prime that you just mentioned, when Michael Jordan talks about playing basketball, the way that I see stillness come through in his Obviously, he changed the paradigm of sure. what was possible for a basketball player. He talks about seeing the world in slow motion. Yes. Like seeing everything ahead of when it's going to happen and when everyone else is, uh, th- whether it's a flow state or whatever. So when how does uh, stillness manifest in each of these areas of yeah. our life, the, the, the sort of parts of the book that you... Well, that seeing the world in slow motion is so important. And it comes from experience. It comes from self-discipline. It comes from, uh, you know, tuning out the things that don't matter. I think what you see those athletes doing in those moments is that they, they become totally present. They don't, they're not worried about the shot they missed. They're not thinking about, uh, you know, hoisting the trophy over their head. They're not thinking about anything but the exact moment they're in. And it, it strikes me as funny that we we think that whatever we're doing in life, whether we're doing an interview or we're you know, writing a memo or we're you know, on a phone call with a client, that we can get away with not being present. That we're like, we're so good. I can half do this and half do this at the same time. No, you can't. Yeah. Like not well, not at the elite, best in, best in the world, uh, world-class level. Or even um, highest performing for you. Yeah, like you're, you're not getting yeah. the best out of yourself in that way. So. What they do is they become totally present. But Michael Jordan is such an interesting character to me because you're right. The best Michael Jordan moments are, you know, when he's playing for the love of the game. It's all in, totally focused. Um, but he's also a character in the book, somewhat yeah. of a cautionary character, <laughs> yeah, right? Like, have you seen just the Michael? Juxtapose it with that, yeah. Have ahead. you seen the Hall of Fame speech? No. It's haunting. So yeah. the, the, the it references that. Go ahead. Yeah. The, the greatest honor of Michael Jordan's career is when he gets inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame. And he gets up there and instead of, thank you, this is so wonderful, I'm so honored, he's like, basically like, I got some shit to say to all you people, is what he does. And he dumps what's clearly decades of anger and resentment and petty grudges that he's created and used as fuel. And so that's one of the things they talk about in the book, like, we think that anger is a good creative fuel. And we go like, I'm gonna shove this in all these people's faces, I'm gonna prove them wrong. And, and I'm not saying that it's not powerful fuel, I'm just saying that it's corrosive Toxic and, and, yeah, yeah. and volatile. So you know, there, there is great art um, that is clearly defined by the artist's rage or the artist's anger, and there's great athletic performances that way. But it tends to later explode all over the same person. And that's what happened to Jordan, right? Like it, it, it did fuel him in certain moments in his career, but then there he is in the shining moment of his career, humiliating a guy who got, he, he actually invites the person who got picked for the high school basketball team over him his sophomore year of high school, he invites him to the dinner and then calls him out and basically humiliates him in front of millions of people. Like, that, that is not, like, 
that is not a good place to come from. Yeah, for sure. And, and I think what you're seeing that does, and this is something I think people want to think about, is it's like, so imagine you are the greatest basketball player of all time. You win all these championships. But the attitude you cultivated to get there makes it impossible for you to enjoy that achievement. All you're thinking about is this open wound you've been picking at for 30 years, right? Yeah. There's no way to live. That's so true. So Michael Jordan aside. Yes. Good point. Yes. And I like the juxtaposition there. But like, walk us through, trot out each of these different aspects and where stillness lands in well, we, we know the mind. Sure. This is sure. sort of like part of why I used Michael Jordan as an example. Yeah. At his prime or at any athlete's prime or any musician or you see someone in a flow state, you you recognize the greatness and you can see, at least I'm, I feel like I'm able to connect yeah. with the part that's in there. Well, so, the, so the, the opening story in the mind section, and this is something I, I basically sort of became the, the main thing they built a book around, is 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 Kennedy and the Missile Crisis. Amazing. Here, here yeah. this guy goes to bed, and he wakes up, and people tell him that there are missiles pointed at his country and in the Northern Hemisphere that, if left uh, unchecked, could kill millions of people. And the advice from his generals is like, you got to go now. You don't have time to think about it. You don't have time to question. You got to drop some bombs and you got like 10 minutes to decide. And Kennedy realizes that no good decision is made when it's rushed. And usually the people that want you to rush it are trying to get you to not think about something. And he has the incredible strength and the clarity to stop and go, now, obviously, we're not going to allow these missiles, right? There are certain non-negotiables. But why did they put them here? What were, they, what were the Russians trying to accomplish? What are they hoping to get out of this? And if we respond this way, are we, in fact, actually giving them exactly what they want? And he goes, like, I'm not worried about the first step. I'm worried about the sixth step. And he's like, I'm worried that you guys who are so sure you're right, um, if you're wrong, no one's going to be around to tell you that you're wrong because we're all going to die. Yeah. And and what Kennedy does over these 13 days, even that he stretches it out over 13 days is an amazing. experience. Yeah, amazing. You know, he he's taken long swims in the White House pool. He he writes a letter later to the the gardener, the the, the woman who tended the White House rose garden, thanking her for her important contributions to saving humanity because the walks that he went through, the thinking that he did allowed him to come to a solution that saved all these lives. And so, you know, the job of the leader is to think about the things that other people aren't thinking about, to push away the unhelpful or the destructive thoughts, right? To think big picture, to think compassionately, to think strategically. And so the mindset that Kennedy brings to that missile crisis, he, he says, um, I want to use time as a tool and not as a couch. And I, that's such a great line. Amazing I think about line. that now all the time. It's like, wait, why am I throwing back an answer in two seconds to this email. What if I slept on it? You know, what if I talked about it to other people? How can I make sure that I'm, I'm considering all the factors? And so, again, you know, when we think meditation, we think an empty mind. And that is part of it. But you're emptying it for a reason. So you can really get to the core of what the truth of that situation is or what life is or humanity is. And so Kennedy is able in that missile crisis to get to a place of such mental and moral clarity that he's able to detangle it, he's able to help the enemy save face, um, he's able to negotiate both publicly and in a, in a compelling way, but also privately and secretly in a compelling way. 
and in the end saves, you know, millions and millions of lives. And I don't think if any other person was in that same situation, that same moment, that we would have had the same ending. So hopefully the stakes of the stillness that we are seeking are not so high. <laughs> right. But you're going through a divorce. You're going through a contentious business negotiation. You're caught up in the excitement of an accomplishment or the, you know, the pain of a failure. Can you think that way and can you get to that sort of place of openness and vulnerability, but also conviction and clarity that he was there? That's what the stillness is going to help us accomplish. Emotions. Yeah. Uh, um, anger, frustration, explosive, fiery. Like this Long, is this, this, Longing, craving. Yeah, all this stuff in, in the spirit part. Like, how does stillness manifest it there? Because I think, to me, the, the patience, there's wisdom in the Kennedy story. Yes. And it's just, it's very clear. We we elected a very wise person. And they navigated their way out of there. Uh, is Can you say the same thing about all the emotional charging if we had someone who was um, not as emotionally fit? <laughs> like Right. No, you can have clear thoughts, but emotionally you could be coming from the wrong place and that can disrupt everything. So it... In the book, I talk a lot about Tiger Woods because Tiger Woods is such a great example of someone physically complete control of himself, mentally totally clear, locked in on the game. But spiritually, emotionally, in his private life, he's coming from this place. When you look at his childhood, it's coming from this place of profound pain and anguish. His, His sense of right and wrong is all twisted up because of how he was raised and the example that he saw from his parents and just... Also, just the incredible temptations and you when know the enabling that happens yeah. when you're that famous. I mean, so one of the things I sort of zoom in on is his dad uh, would refer to the idea of enough as yeah. the E word. And so should we be surprised <laughs> that he was insatiable and that yeah. he could never be satisfied and that despite a you know a great career and a beautiful wife and beautiful children, he was, you know, it clubs at 2 a.m. or hooking up with waitresses in car parking lots, right? And, and, and so ultimately, you, you might be able to be unaligned or, or disintegrated for a short period of time, or in, even in his case, for a decade. Yeah. But eventually, they come. This, these are like tectonic plates, and they come crashing together. And ultimately, that sort of emotional bankruptcy, that, that moral degradation, and that disastrous personal life explodes all over the rest of his life and it takes it down. I mean, it took 10 years of work to rebuild to get to where he was now where he just won this major. And one hopes that winning that experience and being hugged by his, I think his son, at the, yeah, that, that, was, that meant something more than all the other victories. And, and so that's really what I'm talking, I'm not saying that it's not worthwhile to win, that it's not worthwhile to accomplish things, to hunger for an accomplishment, but can you do it from a place, a better place, emotionally, spiritually, mentally? Uh, again, like I think about this and like, I wanna do great things as a writer. I wanna be successful as a writer. I wanna be one of the best in my field, maybe, you know, whatever it is. But I try to do the work not from a place of desperation or a place of craving, but as I was saying, from a place of fullness. So it's like, I wanna, I, I want to prove that you can do great work and be a good person or be at least trying to be yeah. a better person yeah. and that you don't have to be a, like you don't have to be an unbalanced monster yeah. 
You know, and I, so many of the photographers and the great artists and the great writers and the musicians were really bad people. Totally unhinged. And, and, I, and I, don't, I don't think that's the only way to do it. I don't think that's the right way to do it. I don't think that's the way people, people might think they want to do it that way, but trust me, you don't. A lot of them end up killing themselves because right. it's deeply miserable. Yeah, you deconstruct any of those lives and it's sharp contrast of what you'd actually want. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. yeah. So, so it's how can, you, how can you succeed from a place of enough and stillness and gratitude, but still try to get better every day and still work really hard? Um, I'd, I'd like to think that uh, people who are successful can continue despite the success that you don't have to continue by telling yourself that your success isn't enough that you're worthless that it won't you know what i mean like yeah. it, it would be sad to think that tom brady believes that only if he wins one more ring will he be good you know um <laughs> right. that's it's that. almost so it's it's absurd to like hear those words but to know that that is the psychology of so many people that are in that place i'm sure i i mean i'm sure you've done this in your own life like you go if i can only get here that will be good then you get there and you whoa this isn't what i thought it was and so instead of taking stock of yourself and going why did i think that this external accomplishment will change how i feel internally you go oh my number just wasn't high enough, mm -hmm. you know? Or yeah. it's like, oh, hitting this bestseller list, it, it's because it's, it's not the bestseller list. And it's because <laughs> it's not number one. You know what I mean? Like, sure. So what, what we do is we just move the goalposts repeatedly. And we can see why moving the goalposts moves the ball forward, moves the species forward. It's good for humanity. Right, good for biology. But it's no, it's no, it's no way to live. Right, well, the brain isn't meant to keep us happy or fulfilled, right? Yes. It's meant to keep us alive and thriving and all those. Or not, it's just meant to propagate the species, yeah. right? Yeah. So, you know, the conqueror tells them, that I have this quote from Stefan Zweig, who's one of this great underrated novelists of the 20th century. He says, history recounts no instances of a conqueror being surfeited I mean, satisfied by conquests. No one, Alexander gets to the end he's of the like, world. I'm good. <laughs> and he's not like, I did it. I can go home and live in peace. No, he goes, oh, do you know there's another country uh, like over here? Like, what about this, right? And again, it's great for the customer <laughs> that Jeff Bezos wants to continue to grow Amazon and make more and more money. But uh, but is it good for him and his children? That's, the, the, you know, like, so can you, can you keep going and growing, but can you do it not from a place of delusion where you're being like, if only I get one level higher, then I'm good. I just shared something this morning that I saw online and it was remember when you wanted what you have now. Yes, yes. This is a powerful, powerful thought. I mean, when, so seven, eight years ago when we did that first interview, I. I all I wanted to do was be a writer, and all I wanted to do was have one book. That yeah. a book? Can you yeah. imagine publishing a book? And so I published the book, and then it's like, oh, but it's got a debut on the bestseller list, and it does. But then before it's even before I even have it framed on the wall, <laughs> I I gotta have the next one. Totally. And then the next one, and the next one, and the next one, and 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 uh, you know you just keep going. And and so this is like what I what I was thinking though is okay so. Does that attitude, is that why I am where I am? And in, in a sense, yes, that's why I have the deals. That's mm -hmm. why the book, that's why the someone agreed to purchase the book, like the publisher. But the actual work itself, 
did not come from that place. The work came from, like we were talking about earlier, that I actually love making the books, right? Um, don't don't go there quite yeah. yet, because I'm gonna come back to process okay. at the end. Okay. I wanna complete the, tr- the, oh, the yeah, trifecta sure. here. Now we're into the habits section, yeah. the, the process, the physicality, the um, talk to me about how, what role that habits play in stillness. Winston Churchill is a big character in the book, and I like him because he is probably the busiest, most ambitious person of the 20th century. You know, his life spans from the final cavalry charge of the British Empire to the space age, and he's like an integral part of all of it. He's always there, he's always working, he's always trying to get to that next position. He wants to have influence. He, you know, he serves in government for almost 70 years. That's crazy. You know, he writes like 30 books, 10 million words. You know, he gives 2,300 speeches. He, you know, he tours the planet, does all this stuff. And so on the one hand, that might be like, oh, that's the nightmare. But when you actually, when you listen to Churchill, when you read about him, it's like, this guy was happy. He had a pretty good family. He never seemed to have been... Uh, overwhelmed. He he seemed to always have this zest and zeal for life. And a big part of that you find when you really study him is uh, he had these hobbies. He Winston Churchill, despite all, in addition to all the things I just said, also painted 500 paintings. Yeah, I was in just going to say he was an avid painter, right? Avid painter. Quiet. He also learned how to uh, lay bricks as a hobby, he, he builds these cottages on his property. So, so here you have the most powerful man in the world down in the dirt laying bricks. You have him sitting out in a field painting a cow or a tree, and he is not a good painter. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. like those paintings are not in museums because they're so beautiful. It's because of the what the person who painted them was able to accomplish in kind of through the painting. Context, yeah. Af- after the Casablanca conference where all the major powers get together, Churchill drives five hours to paint a sunset in Marrakesh. Um, and 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 that he wasn't always that way. He cultivated actively. He basically has this nervous breakdown after the First World War and his sister-in-law says, hey, my kids really like painting. Maybe you want to borrow their paints. And he does and he just falls in love with the creativity and he falls in love with the... I don't want to say the purposelessness of it, but I mean he he falls in love with just the act for its mm-hmm. own sake. Yep. And, and I think this is what you talk about. It's creativity is important, not just because it'll make you better at your job, not just um, because it'll help you make more money, but because it's intrinsically and genuinely enjoyable. And you know, he it really teaches him how to slow down, it teaches him how to be present. He notices that it changes how he sees the world. He would he would go to museums and just look around and soak in all these paintings and then rush back and try to paint them from memory. You know, we can imagine that the ambitious uh, Winston Churchill who wants to be prime minister was not previously going out to see sunsets, right? <laughs> and so the painting brings out this other side of him. And and so the painting was a part of it. He was a big fan of resting. You know, he takes a nap every day. He loves poetry. His schedules that he's published are amazing. And and yeah. that routine, even the routine, the structure. So it's like, oh, this wasn't like a, a forest fire of chaos. This was a lot of work, sure, but it was broken up in chunks. And he just did it every day. And so I, it's really important that we don't get intimidated by these really successful people or learn the wrong lessons from them. 
we really break down how they do what they do. And you realize someone like Winston Churchill, by being disciplined, by being orderly, by cultivating different skills and resting and taking care of himself, is able to have stillness despite the fact that, you know, he's a major figure in two world wars, an enormous empire, he's doing all these things. That's, and that's what I mean about stillness within the active real world. So I think you picked an absolutely genius character to unpack all that. To me, the, the, um, that someone can be that accomplished and not be, you call, what do you call it, a forest fire? Yeah, <laughs> forest fire of chaos. <laughs> Amazing, I'm going to remember that. Not a forest fire of chaos. I think, you know, I love books that challenge conventional wisdom. Sure. And to me, that is a, that is a great lens through which uh, you challenge conventional wisdom. I am reminded of a story of a mutual friend of ours, Tim Ferriss, that uh, Tim... Uh, he was having, we were up here, he was on some business meetings or something, had some meetings up here, and I remember <clears throat> we got together and he said, man, you seem like things are going well, but you seem so chill. And I was yeah. like, oh, well, I just, I don't know, maybe it's this thing, meditation, that yeah. I started. And he was like, I don't know, man, I've, like, I just, I don't buy it. Yeah. I, like, I, and, and we, that was our second conversation about it. And then our third conversation, he was starting to ask questions. And it was basically, well, I only got here because of my sure. forest fire of totally, chaos. Totally. Or I think Tim would put it as ambition or edge, I think was the word that he actually used with me in the moment. Mm -hmm. And yet, then a couple, I think you and Rick Rubin and a handful of us ganged up on him and said, no, try meditation. Yeah. It's really powerful stuff. And, and so he comes full circle. And now he talks about, you know, un, understanding that the thing that he actually thought was his virtue, his edge, was actually the anchor. And then when he started calming yes. down and quieting himself, that it was there was this like massive uh, proliferation. I think he's the lens that he used through that was like, what would it be if it was easy? And then his life became incredibly easy. So he right. started taking like the path of water. So if your book challenges as it does so well, conventional wisdom on this point, and this now gets into to habits and process and, and you personally. What is it that you, personal Ryan, did in order to create this book? What was your stillness? Sure. What was your rock in a forest fire of chaos? <laughs> Man, which is not a bad way to describe my life sometimes. But, the, but uh, you've got, totally. you, have, you just had a second child. Yep. You, you're on books like 10, 11, or 12. I got my own company. I got investments. I got a lot of stuff. Yep. Right. And, and so in, you found a way to sure. not just write about it, but clearly to live it. And then here you are. This is the first time you debuted at number one. Yeah. So, so this is not an accident. There's this macro sure. thing. No, I, I agree. I agree. So, I mean, one of the challenges I kind of set out for myself in the book is like, can I write a book about stillness that advocates for stillness that doesn't just say, like, go meditate? Like, I actually didn't want to talk about meditation. You at didn't say all it one book. time. I did not. <laughs> um, and on purpose, because one, uh, I don't really meditate. And most people, most people have heard that they should meditate and clearly have chosen <laughs> not to, right? So, to me, it's kind of like, I also feel like meditation is advanced. So, like, you don't tell a really unfit person, 
these incredibly minute, you know, dietary restrictions, you're just like, look, what are the big changes you can make? So I think about that on my own practice. So for instance, every morning, I just go for a long walk. Uh, I go for a long walk with my son. We live on a dirt road. We go for this walk. I don't take the phone. We're just outside. We're just present. And this is where I have a whole bunch of my ideas. This is where, like, instead of starting the day on the back foot because I picked up my phone and I saw I have to do all these things, I'm going to take some time for myself in the morning and I'm going to do what is actually probably similar to a walking meditation. I'm going to go outside in nature, be at peace, and then I'm going to bring that peace back to the work. And, you know, there's so many practical things. You Wake up early before there's distractions and noise, right? Go to the creative work right away. Sit down with a journal. Don't have any expectations for what needs to be in this journal. Just kind of stream of consciousness. Uh, You know, do your morning pages, as Julia Cameron calls it. Um, you know, I went, I, I went for not one, but two swims today because it was stressful. I got a bunch of interviews. I'm running around like crazy. I'm doing two talks. I was like, I'm going to swim in the morning. And then when I'm back at the hotel, I'm going to swim in the afternoon. And like swimming to me is a deeply meditative experience. I'm, uh, I, there's no screens. Uh, you can't hear anything. You're looking directly at the floor beneath you. You're doing a repetitive motion. And this is where I, you know, I'm breathing, I'm calming myself, I'm staying in the present, I'm just enjoying an experience. So there's all sorts of things you can do. And, and even, we talked about Winston Churchill's routine, like the, if you do something, if you do it, if you do a habit a couple times, if you do something a couple times, it becomes a habit. You do it for a couple of weeks, it becomes a, a routine. You do that routine for a couple of years, it becomes like a ritual. Mm-hmm. And so for me, like the, the rituals that I practice as a writer, the, the, the structure I have for my day becomes almost sacred. It gets me into the headspace that I need to, to get. Um, you know, you, you could sprinkle incense in your hand and run it and smell it and you can kind of get to a, you, you can use that as a way to center yourself to get in to where you need to get. It's why athletes, you know, do yeah. this and this and this yeah. before they shoot a free throw or why they, you know, they start their warm up at exactly seven and a half minutes before the game or they eat the same peanut butter and jelly sandwich, the same, yep. the, the ritual and the routine of it is another way. And so there's all, like, we've got to attack stillness where what we're attacking is the franticness, the opposite of stillness from yep. all these different ways. And we subdue it and we calm it down into a place where all we're really thinking about is the stuff that matters. We're in the right headspace, in the right heart space, and then we can do whatever it is that we're meant to do. Yeah. Like in the book versus like I think you I've noticed you living that. I'm yeah. wondering if you lived it before you wrote about it or it was in writing about it that you lived it. It's a little bit both. I mean, I, I, what I try to do with my books, I'm not, I, I want to be clear that I'm not writing from a place of like superiority and mastery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm writing as a student on the journey that's maybe a little bit ahead of the reader, but is certainly struggling and falling back and failing in the same ways that the reader is. And so I, I'm often writing to a younger version of myself or to people similar to myself. Um, and so stillness, I, I'm not writing about stillness because it comes naturally to me. I'm not writing about ego because I don't have one. And I'm not writing about overcoming obstacles because uh, uh, You've overcome them all. I overcome them all. <laughs> right, I'm writing about it because I'm bumping into this constantly and I'm working at getting better at it. And, and I, I'm turning to history and philosophy and religion and wise people and saying, 
well, what have you figured out? And can I put all this in one place? Uh, and, and so, yeah, it's, it's a total struggle. I mean, how can you be still when you're an ambitious, busy person? Like, that's a question that I wake up and think about on a daily basis because it's my life. Yeah. All right, now we're going to go back, all the way okay. back to process. All right. Because I feel like now we've trotted out enough of the, the book and we understand it, but what we really want to do is we want to take action. We yeah. want we we want to find still, and that's the reason someone's, there's two reasons someone's going to pick this book up. One, because it's Ryan Holiday's new book. Of course. And two, it's because you're like, I stillness, I don't know why, but I know enough to know yeah. that this is not going to be bad for me. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's sort of like someone says meditation, horrible, definitely don't do it. No right. one's really ever said that. No. So assuming that we've attached, we've we've acknowledged that there's a lot of people who are going to buy it because you wrote it, now let's take on the concept of stillness and how do we integrate it into our lives. And specifically, I want to talk about the creative process because yeah. for so many people who are watching and listening that's why they tune in to, they do have ambition and they do identify as creators or entrepreneurs and they want to get things going. And there's a conflicting message of, you know, chaos and hustle and 24-hour, sure. 24-7 work. And we've, we've talked generally, but let's talk about loving the process. How do you find that stillness in the process? I was thinking of a, uh, of a couple sort of real practical things people should do and think about. So one is is sort of silence and solitude. Why does Da Vinci get up extra early and head in to work on The Last Supper before anyone else? It's because it's quieter and there's less distractions and he's by himself and he's able to access something deeper. And in his notebooks, he writes this fascinating fable of a of a stone that's like lonely and it rolls itself down on the road with the other stones. And then it realizes that the road is a miserable place to be because there's a bunch of other stones and you're getting stepped on and rolled over. And, and, and so the importance of solitude in the creative process is really important. Whenever I hear a writer or a creative be like, uh, work that they work out of a WeWork or a, or a coffee shop, I'm like, what are you doing? Yeah, how? You yeah. know, like, uh, and, and look, there's a certain amount of privilege about it, you know, affording your own space or your, uh, your studio or whatever, but like you cannot make great work in the midst of the busy scene. Mm -hmm. Or if you're con like, like uh, a rapper doesn't make great art because they were at the club until three in the morning. They made great art because they were sitting alone with their thoughts for some fraction of a second, right? And so solitude is a huge. Bill Gates goes on a think week every mm -hmm. year where he goes out into the woods and he just thinks. And like, are you taking the time to do that in your life? And like my last, uh, the book idea I'm going to do next came to me while I was on vacation with my family, literally building a sandcastle with my then like two and a half year old. I would not have that idea, which is going to be lucrative, which is going to be exciting, which is going to be fun. Would not have had that if I'd not agreed to go on the vacation, right? You can't oh, yeah. always be doing. You have to have quiet and solitude and and uh, you have to sort of alternate between being on and off. Yeah, I talk a lot about in my own experience and sharing with others this on-off, this sort of like gathering and, or, yeah, gathering or taking input and then synthesizing. Yes. And those are two wildly different experiences for me personally. Yeah. Is that universal? Is that the takeaway? I think so. I mean, why do so many ideas pop into our heads in the shower? It's because we're accidentally turned things off. 
Mm-hmm. And so, look, one of the reasons I have such a regimented exercise process is because, and this is where it fits in my routine, it's I'm working really hard on the work the first half of the day. Second half of the day is the meetings and the exercise and the fun. And it's usually when I'm doing something else that the idea that I need pops into my head. So I think that's just a really, a really important part of it. I think a big part of it is, is about stillness is going to be like saying no. You know, we talked about this a little bit, but like if you are overcommitted, if your life is scheduled thing after scheduled thing because you cannot say no, um, if you're agreeing to be on every podcast that asks you because you're so insecure and so desperate for validation that you can't separate between the important and the, you know, uh, inessential or the ones that are not going to have any impact, you're not going to have any time to do the work. You're not going to yeah. have any time to go for that walk or to 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 sit in the pool or to just sit alone quietly and thinking, right? So uh, like when we talk about stillness, it's not it's not just meditation, it's not just clearing your mind, it's not just doing work and therapy. It's also going, "Hey, I have to be really disciplined about my schedule. I have to build a practice that allow like my rule with my assistant is like basically no more than three things in the calendar each day because I have to, what I explained to her is like anything, any time that's not scheduled in the calendar is writing creative time. So when you are adding it into the calendar, know that you are taking away from that time and that now the creative work is pivoting around this thing. So if you add in a meeting that could have been a phone call or a phone call that could have been a text message, now my entire, like you've pivoted my creative process to prioritize this thing. And so that requires confidence. That requires security. That requires having some sense of enough. Yeah. Um, or, or ironically, the more successful you get, the less time you will have to do the one creative thing that you are pursuing the success for in the first place. Remember why you started. Definitely. And, and I... <laughs> I became a writer because I like writing. Yeah. I did not become a writer because I really like speaking. Or, or meetings or... <laughs> or yeah. because I want to start a company, right? right? Like, and so no, knowing like, hey, success as a writer for me means lots of time to write and the freedom to write the things I want to write. That doesn't mean I don't take other awesome opportunities. I don't try to monetize or maximize what I, I get out of the thing. But at the end of the day, success is not running from obligation to obligation for me. Success is I wake up, I have something I want to do creatively, I can do it, and then I have access to the audience who's going to receive that work. That's, that's why I started. That's where I got. Don't trade that thing for another less valuable thing. How do you identify when to be still and when to be not still, not yeah, necessarily sure. forced fire of, yeah, right. of chaos, but... Well, I think first off, let's try to do... I think the, a better way to think about it is let's do everything we are doing from a place of stillness. So you're caught in traffic. Don't be like, but I got to get to my next appointment. And if I'm late, then this. Go, I'm stuck in traffic. I didn't choose this. But what am I going to do while I'm in traffic? I'm going to sit here. I'm going to breathe. Or I'm going to look out the window. Or I'm going to make these phone calls that I've been putting off. Right? I'm going to do that from a place of stillness. Or it's like, hey, I got to bang out these you know, five articles. Bang out the five articles. Don't think about anything but that task in front of you. you know? um, 
You've got a kid running around in circles at home because someone gave you sugar, gave him sugar. <laughs> Don't be like, this is a nightmare. What am I going to do? I'm so stressed. I'm a ter-. Go like, this is hilarious. This is a child. This, this is a kid. This, this is what kids do. This is, this is what kids do. This is what you signed up for. You run around the house like a crazy person. Enjoy it. Do you know what I mean? Like, like become, I think at the core of it, you could be in that nightmarish uh, hotel room that Seneca is in. You could be in the middle of a bankruptcy proceeding. You could be stuck in traffic. You could be stuck at the airport. You could be looking at an email inbox. It, you know, you went into the meeting. You had zero emails. You came out from the meeting. You got 300 emails. And you're like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? No, you go. You just bang, you just sit down and you start responding until you're done, right? Like, just do even the craziest, busiest, hardest things from a place of stillness. So, let's not think about it as a false dichotomy. And and so that's what I've really been working on in this crazy tour is like, this is all I'm doing. I don't need to add on top of it. Yeah. I don't need to feel guilty that I'm not doing this or that. Like, this is what I'm doing, and I'm going to do it the best that I can because that's all I can do. You talked about bumping into these things, and this is why you write these. So is this a letter to yourself? Is this Always. I think yeah. all great work is got to be for the author, for the creator. Yeah. I mean, look, you. it's got to also be relevant and helpful to other people. Otherwise, it's an audience of right, one. Right. But, like, if you're, if you are preaching or lecturing other people or you're – telegraphing what you're demanding that they think or feel. Do you know what I mean? Like if you're taking a photo and you're like, oh, I want to make people feel pain or I want to make people feel guilty. Like I want to, I want to get them to do X. That's, I think the audience can smell that, you know, when you're, when you're writing an article that you're hoping to sell this, or when you're creating a video that you're hoping is going to go viral, like that's always the worst shit. Yeah. <laughs> it's when it's when you feel that it's powerful. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like when I saw this thing, I captured it this way, and it means this to me. And then you go, okay, now can I shift it this way or that way? Can how can I make sure it's it's not just speaking to myself, but it's speaking to some universal truth? But if it's not responding to something in yourself, it's not going to work. And that goes back to what we we're talking about. It's like. If you're doing this to to make a certain amount of money or sell a certain amount of copies, yeah. or win a certain amount of uh, win a certain award, I, I think it, it, even if it works, even if you do that, there's something artificial in it. And there's something that's actually horrible when you are you get the wrong reinforcement, or you 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 know yeah. you, you you write it for the wrong reasons, you get the award, and it's just like only can you connect those dots looking backwards? But anytime, and I, I think we've all experienced times where our motives were out of whack with our values. Yeah. And then you just like, it comes back to bite you in the ass Definitely. for sure later. Yeah, yeah, you see people, you're like, why are you doing this? And you realize, oh, they, it, you know, they got a million views doing it one time and, and somehow that becomes the only note they can hit now. Mm-hmm. And that's, again, that's not what attracted you to becoming an artist. I yeah. see, yeah, I see these people sort of, all these people I know that didn't care about politics not that long ago, suddenly now that politics are the main thing, that's what they're doing. Like, they're yeah. eating the world. That's all they're doing. And it's like, they're doing, it. it's not that they're doing damage to their brand, but it, it's that they are betraying the very reason they do what they do. Yeah. I see it a lot with people wanting to start companies. They had some success at something. Yeah. And then 
the next idea comes along and it just is a business idea. It's not something that they actually care about. Right. And they are swapping out the fact that they were successful in this line of work because they loved it and all these other reasons. And then where they've misattributed success is like, oh, it was a business. Therefore, yeah. I can have success at this or this or this. And they'll trade this beautiful little moment of alchemy or period of their life or creative career or creative project for something that they know that, that everyone knows around them and probably them that they don't actually love, but they're going to transact on it because they were able to do it here. It's catastrophic. And I've, yeah. I've done that myself as well. So Yeah, yeah. You gotta, you've got to do it for the right reasons. And ultimately, if it's not the thing that's getting you out of bed in the morning because you genuinely love it, you're not going to put in what you need to, to have the success. With if stillness is the key, what is the what's the opposite? What are we what are sure. we what are we fighting? I think we're fighting uh, the craving and the relentlessness and the ceaselessness and the frenzy and the distraction and the 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 busyness of the modern world. So when I'm saying stillness is the key, you know, the question is to what? And I'm saying it's the question. It's it's the key to all the things that matter. The most imp- it's the key to the most important things in life. Um, the other attributes are uh, the, the, that op- that craving. That's not the key to what are you what are you getting out of this craving? The craving is begetting more craving, and the desperation yeah. begets more desperation, and the need for approval begets the need for more approval. And so I'm trying to. I'm, I'm just trying to work towards and, and talk people towards a place where they are content, but mm-hmm. also creating, you know? And that yeah. might seem like a paradox, but I, I think paradoxes are powerful, yeah. right? Like, um, can, you, can you create and do and be from a place of, of, of enough, yeah. right? Um, from a place of, to me, and to me, that's a fundamental distinction between confidence and ego, Right, ego is the need and the desire and the craving for validation. Confidence is like, this is who I am. This is what I stand for. This is what I'm doing, and and I think my best work came comes from that place. And when I look at my different books and I see, I when I see things I could do differently, it's like I rushed it because I, I was thinking about publication, or I I I didn't go far enough. Or I didn't say what I really thought because I was afraid of what other people would think. Again, not the place of confidence, right? What um, about writing Perennial Seller? Like what do you that's, mean? that's a book about selling yeah. perennially, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and so in, you, in that book, I remember reading it like it was yesterday. I can tell you where I was when I finished the last page. And I, I remember being struck with it's the meta layer of writing about selling something perennially is it's boggling. I just wrote about a book about creativity. I consistently was like got stuck yeah. and had to go read my own stuff to yeah. get unstuck. Sure. When and I'm wondering if did was perennial seller was that a note back to yourself about how yeah. to be like how to go beyond whatever is trendy or hip or whatever yeah. and st- and stay it was, true or it it was like don't compare yourself to other people. Don't compare yourself on these short-term metrics. Make stuff that's timeless. Make stuff that matters. Root it in the principles that matter. Do the work. 
you know, Austin Kleon's thing of like, just keep going. Yep. Like that, those, it, it was a reminder of the principles that I try to shape my work by. It's a, it's a codification of the principles I think the really great work is shaped by. So it's aspirational for me. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, my, my books are inching towards, you know, their first sort of 10 years in existence. And they, they seem to be to have kept going, but you know you don't know. And so I'm always trying to get better. I'm always trying to grow, and I'm always trying to push myself to another level. But not, hey, I want to get an advance that's this big this time, or I want to get this award, or I want to get invited to this party. It's, am I pushing myself creatively again around the things I control, which is basically just what I put in it. Yeah, I think that's a maybe it's just a total keystone the what you can control and loving the process that we again we open with process the book has a lot of process in it and now we're talking about your process like would you be satisfied with this book or your this is your ninth with your tenth book if now that you've went straight to number one would you be satisfied because of your process, you've just reaffirmed that you want to write perennials that are in line with your values. You can do so from a place of confidence, not ego, and now you can enjoy the process through being still. What if Ryan Holiday's next book sold zero copies? Not sold zero, even sure. sold 1,160 copies. Yeah, so I'm not perfect, and I don't think any artist can get to being the sort of enlightened Buddha about it, right? We care too much. And look, also, this is how we eat. So there's a certain <laughs> reality to it. But I feel like, you know, with let's say with, with um, Trust Me, I'm Lying, my first book, I was 30% satisfied with what I put in, 70% waiting to see what the results were. I feel like I've inched towards a place where on this book, like at launch day, before a copy was sold, I'd taken 90% of the satisfaction. You know, you know, I, yeah. I, sold, I sold the stock on the private market before it went public. I got 90% of my gains already locked in. And 10% was, hey, how's it do? Did people send me nice emails about it? Did people yeah. I respect say it was good? You know, where does it hit on the list? How many copies has it sold? But like, I, I'll give you an example. I woke up the morning uh, that the numbers came in. I saw my phone that the numbers were in and numbers I, you mean sales numbers just sales numbers okay. which are going to determine the list yep. and I was able to not check it and go for a swim and go about my normal day and and almost forget that they were there and come back to them and be like oh that was wonderful right that when the numbers came in this is a pleasant surprise how great and the same thing happened when it when it hit number 1 uh I was in the middle of, of doing something. I didn't answer my phone. Uh, I was locked into the conversation I was having with someone. It was great to get the, and then when I got back to the voicemails, it was wonderful to hear the noise, but I took a certain almost perverse pleasure in the people on the other side of the phone being more excited than I was. Not because I was like, oh, this doesn't mean anything. I'm on to the next thing, or um, it, it was, that's just extra. Yeah. The, do you know the word? The appropriate. Oh, go ahead. Do you know the word lanyap? Oh, yeah. That's uh, a, it's a Creole word. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. It, it means like the 13th yeah. donut. It's yeah. like the extra, right? The <laughs> yeah. one you weren't expecting, uh -huh. but you're glad to have. That's, that's where 
I'm trying to get creatively. I'm not perfect. I mean, like if I if I got savaged in in on national television by someone I admired, I'd be like, wow, that affects me. Yeah. But it wouldn't crush me. Um, and just like you know, getting a lot of awards, or you know, when the New York Times raved about one of my books, or when they put you at number one, that also doesn't. It, it feels good, but it doesn't it doesn't fundamentally change how I see myself or the work. And that's when we're talking about these philosophical concepts of what does that have to do with the real world? Well, these are the kinds of things you interact with as an artist. Mm-hmm. You, you get the highest you've ever been paid for a commission. You know, you, you get featured in, on the local news. Your parents finally appreciate what you're doing. You know, you get these external things and you've got to get to a place where you don't let it define you and really... The proper response to to any of that, good or bad, like positive or negative feedback, is like, cool, I got to get back to work. That's so empowering. And I think that it's been fun to listen to and talk about it, honestly, through the lens of you personally and the work that you've done. Uh, We don't have to be so pedantic that we ascribe it to everyone, but it's just as I'm listening to you talk, I'm recounting all the moments where I got it right and got it wrong and just... I think right relative to, I think, the wisdom that you're sharing with us here. Uh, I want to ask one more sort of question I feel like is relevant and it's been implicit. It's been in the air around all this stuff, but I don't I don't know how it fits in your system. Okay. And it's judgment. Okay. So, like, all of these things, these are basically value. These are judgments that we're saying. We're yeah. either deciding we're going to allow someone else's judgment to affect us or we're not, or even our own. We're going to judge our own work. And you keep mentioning it. This is the famous Warhol quote, why everyone else is judging your work. Let them judge it what you do as you get back to work. What role does judging play in, not just in stillness is the key, but in your- In life. Yeah, in life, in your philosophy. So one of the most powerful quotes I've ever heard, it comes from Epictetus. And actually I gave a talk to the Pittsburgh Pirates in spring training last year. They actually have this quote on the wall in the in the in the facility. It says, uh, "It's not things that upset us; it's our judgment about things. Events are objective, right? Somebody said something; they said words to you. You decided those were offensive words or those were complimentary words, right? You mm-hmm. did, you choose to see uh, the the sales as good or bad. The sales are just a number, right? Um, all of these are judgments, and so realizing that that." the opinions we have about things are really the sources of the distress or the yeah. elation that we feel um, is, a, is a real breakthrough, I think, for any creative person. And it's a real big step on the path to enlightenment or wisdom or whatever you want to call it. It's realizing that Shakespeare said, nothing, neither good nor bad, but thinking makes it so. It's not that there's not right or wrong, like morally. It's that you decide whether the the negative review was a negative review. You could decide to see it as a massive publicity boom, yeah. uh, boon, or you could see it as a, a totally clueless piece of nonsense that you're not even going to pay attention to. Or you can decide that the New York Times is the end-all, be-all, and if they don't like it, you should go kill yourself, right? Like, you have that power. And yeah. so... It, and, and that power it needs to be wielded responsibly. And ideally, it should be wielded in a way that allows you to keep going, that allows you to be productive, that doesn't either inflate the ego 
or totally destroy your confidence. And so this judgment is super important and, and it takes a lifetime to practice that judgment and to figure out what or sort of what the right and the wrong ones are. But that, that like we, that things are objective and then we put our opinions on top of them. It was just sort of a life-changing realization for me as an artist. Well, as someone who is your friend and has consumed probably eight of your nine books, and I have like nine books is a lot, but I, th yes. I think I could probably name them if I had a gun to my head. But like you're, you're so sharp now. It's Thanks. like like just homie to homie. It's so focused. I know like two paragraphs in that I'm reading your book and. Everything feels familiar, feels comfortable, but challenging and new. It's like you are, this is, I think, next level mastery. It's been well, super, it was super fun. Again, I, I received this last night. I know from I the sent publisher. you earlier. You, maybe you sent it to San Francisco, I don't know. Uh, but like. That does it, mean a lot to me. I think one of the things I do practice as an artist, I try to be indifferent to external results, try to be indifferent to the crowd or the mob, but you do have to cultivate a group of people who are close to you, whose opinions you respect, yeah. who help you get some objectivity of your own opinions. And so the, the one thing that does fill me with meaning and, and satisfaction is when I know that people I admire, who's, who've also done their own <laughs> yeah, work, work in the real world, yeah. uh, when they go like, you, you did it. They might yeah. not agree with it, but they're like, you, it's obvious you did what you set out to do. Yeah. That's all you can really hope for as a creative. So and thank you. you totally crushed this one and it's it feels so fun to see someone like just not just in their stride because to me that feels like they're no longer awkward but this is just sure. like effortless running and uh and i think that the man in the arena quote comes to mind that the teddy roosevelt one which is you know it's like yeah you got to care about the, the opinions of other people in the arena right and, and yeah not the people in the cheap seats yeah. and so thank you for putting me in the of course <laughs> not in the cheap seats but having kidding? just come through it and um, not only did you help me with the writing part of it, but it's just super fun. We are full circle now. You know, your first book, whatever, we talked about it in this room 10 years ago, nine, nine years ago or whatever it was. And um, like, it's just, it's so impressive. So for the folks at home, like I rarely just grandstand on, a, like you just really have to buy this. It's such a powerful, powerful read. And I've still got like 47 got, pages left. <laughs> Saving the best for last. Um, Thank you so much for being Thanks, on the man. show, man. Um, and I know the best best place to, these are available everywhere books are sold, I presume. Um, yep. And uh, what about you personally? How do, what's the best way for people to follow along? I know you got a great email newsletter. Yeah, ryanholiday.net, dailystoic.com, at ryanholiday, at dailystoic. And the daily emails from Daily Stoic are That's just in, incredible. Book lists that you put out, um, is that the, like, do you feel yeah. like the best way to stay up to, up to speed with what you're doing is to get your email newsletter? Yeah. Okay, awesome. Congratulations, man. Thanks, man. Huge, huge accomplishment. Numero uno. Thank you. <laughs> see you next time. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope to see you uh, maybe tomorrow. All right, that about wraps it up. But uh, hey, before you bounce, two quick things. Um, actually, I'm going to go three quick things. Thing one, A, thank you so much for being a part of this community. And I'm not quite sure how you, you landed on this podcast. It doesn't matter to me. The fact that we're all in this together and that we're able to have a conversation is awesome. I feel uh, honored to be in your ears right now and that uh, you've paid attention to what I've been doing, what Creative Live has been doing for some time. And whether it's been a day or 10 years, I just want to say thank you. It's also really important to know on the backside of that that I, I 
do a lot of responding to comments. So hit me up, on, you know, direct message me on, on Instagram or Twitter or at me. I try and respond as much as possible. So let's have a conversation that transcends me just being in your ears here. Let's try and do it some, somewhere out there in, on the internet land. That's thing one. Thing two, again, I'm not quite sure what channels you pay attention to me and my work, but please go check out. I'm at Chase Jarvis or slash Chase Jarvis or whatever on all the platforms. And it's really important to me. Also, if you wouldn't mind checking out 